Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by John Nagel, who at present occupies two consecutive roles, I guess. John is currently reader in sociology at Aberdeen University, whilst also possessing a chair in sociology at Queen's Belfast. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. I think there's a great deal of, of interesting stuff that we can cover today on divided societies, on Lebanon. And, and potentially even the desectarianization of, of political life. But thank you for joining us. It's really exciting to have you on the show. Uh, great. Thanks, Simon, for inviting me. Uh, looking forward to it. Thank you so much. It's yeah, really exciting. I, I read a recent piece of yours and it really got me excited about some of the stuff that, that us in, in politics and Middle Eastern studies can learn from, from beyond the traditional disciplines of political science. Um, John, you're an anthropologist. Can you tell us a bit about why you got interested in, in anthropology, please? Um, yeah, so I think what the anthropological perspective can bring is an understanding of kind of human motivation in terms of kind of conflict, you know, why individuals get involved in violence. Um, so, um, you know, anthropological kind of perspective, especially its methodological, um, you know, belonging in participant observation, ethnography, allows us to kind of, you know, do research with, you know, individuals, with kind of groups, and to kind of go beyond just a kind of institutional or kind of structural analysis of, you know, why conflict occurs. So that's, yeah, so that's, I think, the reason why I've always been interested in the anthropological perspective, because, you know, I'm interested in kind of humans and human motivation. Sure. And you, you've got this interest in divided societies. Yeah. Where does that come from? Um, well, um, as, you know, um, brought up in uh, Belfast as um, a young kind of kid we kind of left you know when I was fairly young but I still have lots of family in Belfast and Belfast is a quintessentially divided society you know divided by two ethno-national traditions of unionism and nationalism um, so I always had this kind of interest in trying to understand you know what created these divisions what sustains these uh, cleavages but also so um, I've always been kind of fascinated in people who don't quite fit into these um, binary ethno-national traditions. So it's uh, people who identify themselves as non-sectarian. So it could be trade unionists or anarchists, um, people who were punks in the 1970s, um, LGBTQ and feminist movements and so on. So um, I've always been really kind of fascinated about why these individuals and groups um, decided um, to try to bring about an alternative kind of understanding of um, what constitutes politics and societies in these divided societies. And in what ways are these movements which are kind of often underlooked in um, academic research, to what extent can they contribute towards sustainable peace building? Sure. Um, you're, you're coming at this from a, from a different perspective to, to most of our listeners, I would imagine. So can you just give a, a brief sort of introduction to 
to some of the themes that, that you've identified and just flagged up there from an anthropology perspective? What do, what do students and scholars of politics and, and the politics of divided societies need to learn from anthropology before sort of embarking on these things? Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure whether there's some sort of unique anthropological kind of insight um, which can kind of blow open how we understand these places. But, but I think um, kind of political science, especially um, research on divided societies and power sharings, is obsessed with political institutions, you know, um, especially with um, institutional design in divided societies. Yeah. So electoral systems, you know, the selection of ministers and, you know, security and reform and all of these kind of types of things, which in themselves are really important. But what gets overlooked is the kind of consequences of these institutions, how um, groups and individuals kind of interact with these institutions, um, the extent to which kind of groups can also kind of challenge some of the more um, malevolent kind of aspects of these institutions in terms of how they may essentialize or reify kind of group-based identities. So I think what, what I try to kind of emphasize in terms of my research and whether it's kind of un- unique or not is that these kind of... Um, that we need to go beyond just looking at the institutions themselves to have a look at the forms of kind of agency which these institutions may provide and uh, kind of multiple forms of contestation which may arise, um, you know, in terms of whether it's LGBT and feminist movements and divided societies, labour movements and so on. So, um, yeah, to kind of sum up, to go beyond um, an analysis of the institutions themselves. Yeah, I think it, it's all too easy for for um, scholars, particularly of political science, to forget that politics is about people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's. I mean, I I don't want to come up with some sort of straw man to say that political scientists are only just um, obsessed about institutions because, of course, they're not. Sure, but yeah. I think um, at the moment there is a kind of strain of research. Um, on civil war and post-civil war societies, which um, very much kind of focuses uh, focuses on institutional design as the only way to bring about a sustainable peace. And, you know, one of the more kind of problematic aspects of these institutional designs is how they only accommodate um, ethnic or ethno-religious groups to the exclusion of many forms of kind of political identity, which I... Which yeah. I could include, you know, sexuality, gender, um, class, and all of these kind of types of things. Of course, I think that that's really important. I've read some some stuff, and granted, a lot of it is yours recently, that has started to acknowledge the importance of those missed out of of these these power sharing agreements. So it, I think it's really important, and I'll certainly share some of your recent pieces that have been been arguing for this. Um, John, let's go to um, to Belfast, if I yeah. may, and Belfast as a divided city. Now, obviously, um, this falls traditionally outside the purview of what we'd normally be doing on the Sepak yeah. Pod, but can you tell us a bit about Belfast as a divided city, please? Um, sure. So um, Belfast is a city um, historically kind of divided between two different ethno-national traditions. So unionists who want to um, keep Northern Ireland within the UK, and Irish nationalists who want um, Irish independence. 
And the city has been sort of divided since really um, towards the mid-19th kind of century. Um, and these kind of cleavages have been kind of relatively kind of permanent and they've led to kind of violence at different times during um, Belfast history. So um, particular moments of violence would include the 1920s and then on a more kind of sustained basis, the outbreak of troubles in 1969. Um, so the legacy of this division is apparent still today. Um, you know, many parts of Belfast are um, segregated into nationalist and unionist estates. And there's still a high degree of um, educational kind of segregation, you know, that nationalist school to um, Catholic schools and unionist school to kind of state schools. And there's often not a lot of kind of contact between the two groups. Although kind of things are kind of, you know, uh, kind of changing, you know, it's, it's becoming a much more um, uh, kind of cosmopolitan city. Um, so, but at, at the same time, the kind of legacy of a conflict has left this, um, you know, residue of uh, segregation and kind of distrust between the two groups. And the power-sharing um, institutions, which were introduced as part of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, um, arguably have not done much to try to ameliorate these um, cleavages, yeah. but in some ways have um, intensified them. So, um, you know, since the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, um, more people vote for the kind of hardline political parties who represent the two groups. So, whether that's Sinn Fein, who are the, the main kind of hardline nationalist party, or the DUP, who is the hardline unionist party. So, um, you know, obviously for me, I see a lot of resonance and overlap with other kind of divided societies and cities such as Sarajevo and more particularly in terms of my research, um, Beirut. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get on to Beirut shortly, but I want to just just ask you, you talked about about Belfast evolving and becoming this cosmopolitan city. I wonder, has that affected sort of these, these local divisions? Has that helped to, to mitigate those divisions? But also, how has this move taken place? How has Belfast evolved as a city into this more cosmopolitan arena? Yeah, it's, it's quite a kind of contradictory um, kind of process which is going on. Um, and we need to kind of understand that the political economy of this, because in some ways, kind of Belfast is a twin track city. Um, you know, if you're middle class. Um, professional and have a decent job, then yeah, you can enjoy Belfast as a cosmopolitan city. You know, there's parts of Belfast which aren't kind of segregated. However, you know, um, without being too reductionist about it, you know, if you're working class, you're more likely to live in one of the kind of segregated, um, you know, housing estates. So, you know, when I talk about Belfast becoming a much more kind of cosmopolitan sort of open city, that's not necessarily um, something which is kind of shared by everybody. Um, but one of the things which we're beginning to notice now is um, survey evidence is beginning to show that more and more people in Belfast and Northern Ireland are beginning to identify themselves as neither nationalist or unionist. I think uh, recent survey evidence has shown that up to 40% 
of people who see themselves as non-sectarian and um, a substantial part of that cohort um, would be younger people you know between the ages of 25 and 40 so it it seems to kind of highlight that you know that there's this kind of younger generation who weren't necessarily kind of brought up during the conflict or the troubles who are more likely to kind of espouse kind of liberal cosmopolitan views and, and I guess what we're seeing now is a kind of disjuncture between the political elites who are sometimes you know still hold old-fashioned kind of ethno-national um, politics and identities so there's a disjuncture between the elites and the younger kind of generation um, who, who are much more as I say kind of cosmopolitan liberal and are looking for a more sort of alternative politics to ethno-nationalism right do we know how this is taking place? Is there is there data that that goes into sort of understanding the transformation away from these ethno nationalist identities? Um, yeah, there's um, survey data um, which is held at Queen's University Belfast and the University of Ulster called the Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey. So this has been. Um, a survey which is carried out every year for about 30 years on um, just ordinary people and their views about a range of things, you know, whether it's, you know, ethno-nationalism, whether it's kind of gay rights, whether it's rights for women, rights for minorities, all of these kind of types of things. And what this kind of survey data is beginning to show is that there's this kind of steady trajectory of younger people, particularly beginning to move away from traditional ethno-national sort of politics and values. So, yeah, there is um, evidence through these kind of surveys of this particular uh, kind of trajectory. So I know you've you've written about this and I'd like to, to come on to it in a little bit, if I may. But I'd like to just contrast Belfast with, with Beirut, which is obviously yes. more familiar territory to, to more of our listeners. Sure. Um, I guess I guess Beirut is is an obvious choice of comparative case study with Belfast, or is there something in particular that you wanted to look at? Um, yeah, it, it seems outwardly that it is because you know Beirut is a divided uh, city. You know, you know it has much more kind of cleavages compared to Northern Ireland. It's not a dual cleavage city. You know, Lebanon famously has 18 officially recognised ethno-religious kind of groups. Um, You know, so it it gives that sort of basis for comparison, you know, that there's divisions in terms of how kind of jobs are kind of allocated, even some degree of residential kind of segregation, though not quite as intense as in Belfast. So I think there is, you know, a basis for comparison there. But I've always been careful not to just to impose my own understanding of Belfast as a divided uh, city to um, Beirut because there are kind of very obvious kind of differences, you know, um, you know, Belfast is a relatively kind of wealthy city, even during the conflict. It was the only place which could be described as a civil war where your kind of bin, bins were kind of removed every week. You know, it's a functioning kind yeah. of state. You know, um, Beirut through, you know, 
but the conflict 1975 to 1990, um, of course, um, was a place in which the state had basically collapsed and the militias, you know, took care of, you know, um, things which would have been normally um, the purview of the state, such as, you know, refuse collection, education or whatever. So I've always been really kind of careful about just trying to impose this model of Northern Ireland as a divided city to Lebanon and to take into account some of the manifold differences as well. So what are some of those differences then? Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a really interesting question. I've always kind of you know, really kind of wondered what are the kind of major kind of differences. I think one of the things which kind of interests me about kind of Beirut and Lebanon is to the extent in which cleavages um, can change for political exigencies or because of a balance of power held by external um, actors. So, um, you know, for example, the idea that, you know, Lebanon and Beirut was conflict um, divided by Muslims and Christians. I know it's completely kind of simplistic, but, you know, the political cleavages have changed since 2005 in Lebanon, where it's kind of dominated now by, you know, Hezbollah on one side and the future movement on the other with, you know, the main Christian parties being divided. So, you know, in some ways, uh, Lebanon and Beirut shows much more fluidity in terms of kind of politics. Although the sectarian actors still remain, the kind of political framework or game in which they play has shown um, a remarkable kind of propensity to kind of change over time. And that's very different to Northern Ireland where the kind of, you know, the cleavage has been very static. Mm. But I think um, in, in terms of just going back to kind of similarities um, and differences, um, Lebanon has always, and Beirut, of course, has always had this very kind of rich tradition of non-sectarian actors, you know, whether it's kind of leftist and labor movements, and more latterly kind of feminist and LGBT movements, who have been aligned much more broadly to um, the non-sectarian um, political movement in Lebanon, you know, um, so that's kind of similar to Northern Ireland. But what I found in Beirut is often how radical the non-sectarian movement has been compared to in Northern Ireland, you know, but much more vocal in terms of trying to challenge the sectarian elites. Um, and, um, you know, this is something which I think is really kind of interesting and something, you know, is more of a lesson for... Uh, movements back in Northern Ireland and yeah. Belfast. So, am I, I? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but am I understanding correctly that that the Lebanese system has has more space and opportunity and more flexibility for for different types of identities to operate and exist and evolve within? Then, um, no, um, I think it's actually the kind of reverse of that. Just because the Lebanese kind of system institutionalizes sex-based identity yeah. in every single sphere of political and social life. You sure. know, that's also to look, you know, in particular, some wonderful kind of research and just showing how kind of sectarianism permeates every nook and cranny, you know, whether it's the political system, how public sector jobs have doled out, even in terms of kind of sexuality and gender. Yeah. 
you know, the system's completely holistic. But because it's so kind of holistic, that means that there's absolutely no space for inclusion within the system for these non-sectarian actors. So right. we're not okay. trying to gain entrance into it. They realize that it's, you know, it's impossible. So instead, what they have to do is turn more towards radical politics, which is about completely transforming the sectarian system or even kind of overturning it in some right. instances. So, yeah, in actual fact, um, the, the greater there is... Oh, that's not the right way to say it. Um, the more of a lack of space there is for non-sectarian actors within the system generates more kind of radical politics by non-sectarian actors. That that's absolutely fascinating. So the 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 strength of the system enshrining those identities actually yep. inspires people to operate in a more radical way because of their lack of access and because of them because of forcing them to have to do things differently. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think one of the kind of problems with existing research in, on sectarianism is obviously people look for um, differences between sectarian groups. Okay, that's really important. But sometimes there's a lack of kind of understanding of the differences within sectarian groups. Yeah. So, you know, in Lebanon, that's really important that there's massive sort of internal differences in terms of how gender is treated, sexuality about, you know, the political economy of kind of working class people and how they kind of fit into it. But what can people, I think, realize in Lebanon is that the system does take hold of everything and it doesn't provide any kind of way out. So for kind of people who are really kind of dissatisfied with this system and they realize that huge inequalities that the system brings for them is that it does generate, um, at times, a very sort of radical kind of counter movement. So we've seen this in terms of the Youth Think movement in 2015, Take Back Parliament movement, um, you know, even to some extent the LGBTQ movement, which emerged around kind of 2004, um, sort of kind of high level of um, radical politics affiliating itself with leftist movements and non-sectarian movements and so on. So what spaces do they operate in? They're obviously not, they've not got the capacity to operate within the formal structures of the state. So so where do they operate? How do they express themselves and their, their ideas, their identities, their ideologies, their positions? Yeah, yeah I think, yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. And it's something I'm kind of thinking a lot about at the moment. And um, what I think is kind of going on here is because there's no inclusion within the formal institutions of the state, and anyway, the formal institutions of the state of Lebanon are completely worthless anyway because they're never working. I mean, look at how long the parliament was out of operation or how long it took to elect a president. So Lebanon basically kind of operates through informal institutions, and this is where a lot of the activists actually kind of operate through being kind of informal systems. So to give you an, an, an example here, um, the LGBT movement, they can't get the parliament to overturn the criminalization of homosexuality. You know, the parliament isn't going to do that. Yeah. You know, it doesn't care. So what it does instead, it operates through these informal institutions. So the LGBT movement in Lebanon have worked with high court judges 
um, to make sure that every time um, a gay person is brought to court under the basis of um, illegal homosexuality, the court, uh, these judges are going to overturn um, these um these trials because um what 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 what's kind of basically happening here to kind of you know give you a bit more information um homosexuality is banned in lebanon on the basis of article 534 which is sexual intercourse against um human nature so what high court judges have actually done is to say well human nature doesn't have any basis in legal reality you know how do you define what is human nature so high court judges have overturned um these cases in which people have been prosecuted under article 534 by saying well we, we, we can't use nature as a basis for um you know prosecuting somebody so this is happening quite a lot you know activists work through these kind of informal kind of systems of the state you know what, what judges have done is not to kind of set anything which is kind of legally binding but they've made sure that many of these kind of policies which are inherently discriminatory against women or sexual minorities um, can't be activated in some instances so um, yeah I mean this is something which I find really kind of interesting about kind of activism in Lebanon is that it's either kind of radical in the sense where it's really kind of pushing out the state or it's working through these informal kind of mechanisms Sure, it, it's absolutely fascinating and the stuff that you're doing is, is so very important for, for so many reasons reasons. Uh, John, I wonder, can you say a little bit more about, about these movements? I mean, just to contextualize my, my question, we are looking at, uh, with SEPAD, we're looking at the way in which these sectarian identities have been contested, have challenged, um, desectarianized is one of the terms that's been used. Yeah. Others have talked about post-sectarian moments, anti-sectarian movements. I wonder, yeah. can you just say a little bit about those movements and where they might fit into those types of debates? Sure. Um, so um, there's a kind of wide range of non-sectarian movements in Lebanon, which I've mentioned already, such as the LGBTQ, there's some labor movements, feminist movements, even kind of movements which represent um, victims of a conflict. I don't think we can just kind of place them into one sort of kind of category because um, some of these movements are deliberately anti-sectarian, you know, their raison d'etre is to try to bring down the sectarian system. So some sexual minority and feminist movements recognize that the sectarian system is inherently antagonistic towards their rights. So we want to kind of bring it down. Other movements, on the other hand, um, you know, might kind of mobilize for a very sort of short period, Um, you know, so it could be... um, a labor movement, for example, they're not necessarily trying to bring down the sectarian system, but what we're trying to do is get their rights recognized. So, um, and I guess another kind of example of this would be the Youth Think. And it, it kind of, what the Youth Think movement um, revealed, which is a movement which emerged in 2015, and it was about the kind of crash. Um, the, um, crisis in Lebanon over kind of refuse. But what this kind of movement kind of showed is the kind of 
the, the different kind of aspirations, um, identities, um, political forms of mobilization, which could be summoned up by one huge organization. So some members were really radical and wanted to bring down the sectarian system. Other people who kind of turned up for protests, you know, over 100,000 people turned up at some of the protests. All they cared about was, well, am I going to get my trash kind of taken away? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, it's, I think it's important for us not to just see all of these movements as, you know, having one sort of overarching yeah. um, political motivation and so on. There's lots of kind of different kind of shades within them, different motivations. People join for different reasons. Um, so I think what's important for us is to try to kind of understand the kind of complexity of these movements and, you know, why people join and, you know, to what extent are these things driven by class? Is it more likely that middle class people will join these movements compared to kind of working class, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so on? So, uh yeah, it's important not to. It's important to understand the complexity. I think certainly. Is there anything that that we can take out of the Northern Irish experience and the Belfast experience in terms of the way that that sectarian identities have been challenged and circumvented in terms of Beirut? Um, I wish I could say there was an actual fact. I think there's more. Um, that people in Belfast, especially some of the non-sectarian actors, can learn from activists in places like uh, Beirut, because as I mentioned before, many of the movements for non-sectarian groups are quite radical and really wishing to kind of push the state. What we've seen in Northern Ireland um, is some of these kind of non-sectarian groups have been sort of co-opted um, as NGOs, you know, um, funded or organizations so they work on very kind of you know short life issues to do with rights and so on and they don't always necessarily work in alliances so in actual fact um in in some ways these movements in northern ireland could learn quite a lot from what's going on in beirut in terms of how movements have created these broad-based alliances of non-sectarian actors and their capacity at times to be really radical, to kind of push for state, but also to provide kind of new models and new understandings of what Lebanese society could potentially be. I mean, that's very utopian, of course. Of course. You know, but um, I, I think um, what we need to do more research on is what are the kind of outcomes of many of these movements? To what extent have they created any forms of change? How do we classify that change? If it's not necessarily political reform in a place like Lebanon, have they changed, you know, the informal institutions? Have they changed people's attitudes about sexuality and gender, mm. you know, and so on? So I think that's where we need to do a bit more research, is trying to understand um, the outcomes, what consequences these movements have on long-term politics and society. Yeah, I, I certainly echo all of those uh, those urges and and. There are some colleagues within CEPAD and, and beyond who are looking at this in Lebanon, but also in Iraq and yeah. Bahrain and, and finding interesting, if surprising, and in many cases, depressing outcomes, I should say. 
Yeah, it's, it's 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 very sort of kind of complex kind of situation, especially in Lebanon. So, for example, you know, I'm doing some research about the LGBTQ movement, and they created so many kind of incredible kind of changes. You know, in terms of getting judges not to apply law five three four to make the media more visible. They've even kind of changed the language which is used to describe sexual minorities in Lebanon. But at the same time, there's this kind of backlash going on. You know. Um, you know, the state is now more willing to kind of arrest people. It's, um, you know, the internal security forces have raided meetings by LGBT activists and so on. So, I mean, what's quite interesting is to try to find out to what extent or where the kind of boundary is for the state. When does the state begin to kind of take notice of these movements and begin yeah. to try to um, fight back? You know, where, why does the backlash happen at particular moments? Yeah. John, we've taken up a great deal of your time, but it's been absolutely fascinating. So many things to, to think about. And I do hope that we can talk again in the in the not too distant future about how things have, have developed with you and your work. But in the meantime, thank you so much for giving us your time. It's been wonderful to chat. Great. Brilliant. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Enjoyed it. Pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening. Until next time.